It can be very tempting for preachers to talk about the Christian life as if it's one long, uninterrupted good time. Something like the opposite of most country and western songs. Come to Jesus and you'll get your dog back, and your wife back, and your job back. If any of you listen to country and western, you'll know what I'm talking about. It can be very tempting to present things that way. And it may, to some degree, get results. But what happens when people come to Jesus with those expectations and then they face difficulties? What happens when life actually seems to get harder than it was before they came to Jesus? Our understanding of Christianity has to help us see how difficulties fit into the Christian life. And I mention this because the first three chapters of Acts have shown us the church on the crest of a wave. In chapter 1, there were about 120 followers of Jesus. Then the Spirit came, and by the end of chapter 2, there were about 3,000 more believers. The end of chapter 2 showed us a flourishing church, a new community that was focused on all the right things. And this new community was attractive to those outside. We're told these believers enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the church continued to grow. God continued to do wonders through the church. Chapter 3 told us about a man crippled from birth who was healed with a word from Peter. And when that healing drew an astonished crowd, Peter was able to stand up and tell them all the good news about Jesus. The church is on the rise. Who wouldn't want to be part of it? Well, we're about to see that this new community was not attractive to everyone. The church's message of new life didn't come as good news to everyone. In chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see God's new community facing some major difficulties. Big challenges. And half of them are going to come from outside the church. And half of them are going to come from inside the church. These chapters are so important in preparing us to deal with difficulties. This morning we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. If you're turning there in the church Bible, it's page 1095. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see God's new community faced with a question of authority. Chapter 3 ended with Peter standing up in full flow. The healing of the cripple had drawn a big crowd. And Peter was telling them the truth about Jesus. He was calling them to repent and believe. He was offering them forgiveness and new life through faith in Jesus. That's where we left it last week. And now we pick up at chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. The first seven verses of this passage introduce us to the offended authorities. 
Verse 1 tells us the first ones on the scene were the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Remember, Peter is preaching inside the temple courts. It was a big area. He and John met the crippled man on their way to the temple. Then they moved on to a place inside the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. Obviously, the priests worked in the temple, and the temple guard were responsible for keeping the peace in the temple. They were Jewish guards, and their job was to make sure nothing happened that might attract the attention of the Romans. What about the Sadducees? Well, along with the Pharisees, the Sadducees were one of the main groups within Judaism. We know the Pharisees as people who were focused on the details of the Old Testament law and all the precise ways to keep that law. And for them, that involved adding lots of their own laws. We get the sense that most of the Pharisees were taken up with crossing and dotting all the religious T's and I's. But the Sadducees were a very different group. They were Jews, but they don't seem to have been too bothered about the law. They were wealthy, land-owning aristocrats. And apparently, they were the main power holders among the Jews. Their main focus was their power and their wealth. And their main concern was keeping up good relations with the Romans. The Romans were officially in charge. But so long as the Jews didn't attract their attention too much, they could pretty much continue to do their own thing. So it's not hard to see why verse 2 tells us the Sadducees and the priests and the temple guard were greatly disturbed by Peter and John. It's not hard to see why verse 3 says they seized Peter and John and put them in jail. The leaders of the Jews see themselves as the ones in authority. They got rid of Jesus because they couldn't control him. And now his followers are acting the same way. They're impressing the people and they're attracting the people. They're preaching a message about forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in Jesus. The same Jesus that these leaders executed as a blasphemer. And besides, the Sadducees didn't even believe in eternal life. These leaders see Peter and John and their message about Jesus as a threat to their authority. Peter and John and their teaching might loosen the leader's power over the people. And they might ruin their nice relationship with the Romans. And to make it even worse, even though Peter's sermon has been interrupted, even though he and John have been carted off, the message they were preaching seems to have a life of its own. Look down to verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. If we add in the women, we have a much larger number than that. And so by the next day, when the full Jewish council, that's the Sanhedrin, is able to meet together, they're in an even worse mood than they were the day before. All the big names are there in a circle. They bring Peter and John into the middle of the circle, and their question is, in verse 7, 
By what power or what name did you do this? In other words, we are the authorities around here. And we haven't given you permission for this. So what authority do you have? They had asked Jesus exactly the same question. Back in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 20 we were told this. One day he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the Gospel. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Those who see themselves as the authority figures see Jesus and his followers as a threat. Why? Because they can't control them. They can't bend them to do their will. And let's be clear, what Peter and John have actually done is heal a crippled man and talk about sin and forgiveness of sin. They haven't been stirring up a riot. They haven't even been staging a protest. And they haven't even singled the leaders out for any criticism. When Peter talked about Jesus' death, he said the crowd were guilty. So far, he hasn't mentioned the leaders. The only threat Peter and John are posing is a threat to the leader's own pride. The council can't bear to be confronted with the truth. And the truth is that they're only an earthly authority under a higher authority. If you and I are going to follow Jesus, then sooner or later, we're going to attract the anger of people who want us to follow them instead. It might happen in school. You might face the anger or the scorn of a teacher just for believing that the universe was created by God rather than by chance. Now, thankfully, most teachers are more professional than that, but it does happen. And it can often happen at work. You might face anger just because out of allegiance to Jesus, you refuse to go along with something that's questionable. And regularly now, Christians face anger simply for holding to the Bible's teaching on sex. The right context for it and the right boundaries for it. Even our deputy prime minister is willing to label you a bigot for that. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to make him the ultimate authority in our lives, then sooner or later, that will put us out of step with those who think that they are an authority. And remember, this is not about Christians taking the law into their own hands. We're talking about what can happen as we live the normal Christian life. No matter how kind and pleasant we are, no matter how cool and relevant we try to be, if we're going to follow Jesus, sooner or later we're going to face offended authorities. People who see Jesus' authority as a threat to their own authority. Well, how does Peter react to this? 
The first thing verse 8 tells us is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we might ask, well, weren't all the believers filled with the Spirit at Pentecost? Yes, they were. But what's being spoken about here is a special moment of inspiration by the Spirit. Peter is being given the words to say. The Holy Spirit is always with him. But here the Spirit enables him in a special way. And this is the fulfillment of a promise Jesus had given his disciples. In Luke's gospel, he said, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And here the promise is coming true. Peter is being guided by the Holy Spirit. And he points out to the Sanhedrin what an unfair situation this is. He and John are on trial, verse 9, for an act of kindness shown to a cripple. Is that what classifies someone as a dangerous revolutionary? A threat to the peace? Today, we might think of a care worker who gets investigated for praying with a patient. Out of all the genuinely disturbing things in our society, is prayer really that dangerous? Peter has shown that he and John are being treated unfairly. But he still goes on to answer the leader's question in verse 10. Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Peter stands in front of the offended authorities and he points them to the one with true authority. These same leaders killed Jesus because he threatened their authority. As leaders, they see themselves as the builders of society. But they made a terrible, terrible mistake. They rejected the one stone that was strong enough to build society on. Commentators aren't sure whether Peter is calling Jesus the capstone or the cornerstone here. Your Bible probably has a footnote mentioning that. But either way, the point is just the same. A cornerstone was the main foundation stone supporting the corner walls of a building from below. A capstone supported those same walls from the top. So either way, Peter is saying, trying to build an individual life or trying to build a community without Jesus is like building a temple without foundations. There's nothing there able to bear the weight of what you're building. And there's only one possible outcome. It's all going to collapse. Why? Because our main problem is not lack of money or education or opportunities. Our main problem is sin. Sin that separates us from a holy God. 
Peter's not being naive here. Of course, opportunities and education are important. But it's of first importance that we're in a right relationship with the highest authority. That's God himself. And that right relationship can only come about through putting our faith in Jesus. Reconciliation with God is possible, but not by relying on our own effort or ability. It's only possible when we rely on Jesus' death in our place. If we will accept that his death was for us, then we will be saved. The New Testament talks a lot about being saved. So we have to ask, saved from what? From an eternity of punishment in hell. That is the terrible but entirely fair punishment every one of us deserves. And only Jesus can save us from it. He took the punishment so we wouldn't have to. No one else has done that. Not Mary, not Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna, not the Pope. No matter how good any of those people are or where, they don't have the power to save. Jesus is not just one Savior among many. He's the only Savior. And if we reject him, we're rebelling against God. We're setting ourselves up in authority against God. And on top of our own desire to be in authority, we're all surrounded by authorities. Parents, teachers, bosses, traffic wardens, police, tax men and women. But above all of those earthly authorities stands the risen, exalted Jesus. And whether we like it or not doesn't change the fact. He's the ultimate authority we have to reckon with. And this is something Peter had learned from Jesus himself. Back again in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In this context, fear him means make sure you're in a right relationship with him, no matter what anyone else thinks of you. A right relationship with Jesus is the only way to be saved. Peter has confronted the Jerusalem authorities with the highest authority. And they respond by opposing God's authority. They could have submitted to God like the crowds have been doing. But their one concern is to shut Peter and John up. To silence this talk about Jesus' authority. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. 
So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. What these verses show us is that the Jewish leaders were clear there was some amazing power at work here. In verse 13, Peter and John are referred to as unschooled. That doesn't mean they hadn't had any education. It doesn't mean they were illiterate. It means they hadn't had the specialist training of these religious leaders. When it comes to religious matters, Peter and John are non-professionals. And yet they have a power these leaders have never had. And the leaders themselves can't deny it. The crippled man really has been healed. He's right there, bouncing around in front of them, breakdancing across the floor. In verse 16, they have to admit that Peter and John have done an outstanding miracle. And they even realize where the power has come from. In verse 13, the leaders took note that Peter and John had been with Jesus. They realize Jesus is the only explanation for this. And yet, all they can think about is how to stop it. One commentator says they could not deny it, but they will not acknowledge it. In verse 2, we were told the crowds heard Peter's message and were cut to the heart. They said to Peter, what shall we do? But there's none of that here in the council chamber. No evidence is going to change their minds. In the face of this outstanding miracle, these leaders are going to fight tooth and nail for their own authority. Verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. It must have been incredibly intimidating for Peter and John, standing there surrounded by these powerful leaders. The Sanhedrin had 71 members. Back when Jesus was being tried by these same leaders, Peter gave in to fear. You may remember he denied three times that he even knew Jesus. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter understands the true order of authority. When he has to choose between obeying men or God, he'll obey God. Peter is not anti-authority. It's just that he respects God's authority over human authority. Very soon, Peter will be back in front of these human authorities. But for now, Peter and John are let go with a warning. And they go straight back to the other believers. 
And we see them together remembering and depending on God's authority. The believer's first instinct is to pray. And as they begin to pray, they remind themselves of the reality of God's sovereignty. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The Jewish leaders have just asserted their authority. And now the believers remind themselves that they serve a higher authority. They serve God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What they're doing in these verses is renewing their grasp on reality. They turn from the threats handed out by human powers and they lift their eyes to the highest power. It's a terrible mistake for us to think of theology as if it's a stuffy, unpractical thing. There is nothing more practical than theology. When these believers are faced with a serious threat, it's their theology that pulls them through. That's what keeps them standing. Theology just means the knowledge of God. And when we see and know God as he is, how can we fear any lesser power? The reason we might cower in fear before earthly powers, the reason we might let them silence our witness, is not because we need more practical teaching. It's because our view of God in his majesty is deficient. It's too weak. If we're to follow the lead of the earliest church, we will spend a lot of our time together lifting up our eyes to God on his throne. When we do that together, we'll go out from here with our perspective readjusted to where it should be. Our perspective gets blurry and skewed during the week. We start getting confused about who's really in charge. And so when we come together, we need to renew our vision. That's what these believers are doing. And in verses 25 to 26, they quote from Psalm 2. The whole psalm was read earlier, and it's another one of those psalms that were originally about King David, but ultimately about Jesus. And Psalm 2 presents a laughable picture. Human kings and rulers shaking their bony little fists at the Lord. Psalm 2 goes on to say, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
Can anyone see what they're doing down there? It's like the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 tells us the men were building a tower up to heaven. They had big ambitions. But we're told the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. It was impressive on earth, but barely noticeable in heaven. God had to step a little closer to see what all the fuss was about. And that's the perspective you and I need. Even the greatest human powers are unimpressive when they're seen from God's throne. Why should God's people fear any of them? That teacher who leaves us tongue-tied, or that colleague who leaves us wishing the floor would swallow us up, they are nothing beside the God who rules the universe. But at the same time, we mustn't think God is uninterested in the ambitions and the schemes of human beings. He's not only interested, he's involved. He uses those ambitions and schemes to serve his own plans. Verse 27 tells us the leaders in Jerusalem conspired against Jesus. But verse 28 explains that even their conspiracy was under God's sovereign authority. Look again at verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's an amazing thing. And it's amazingly reassuring. If even the death of the Son of God, the greatest evil ever committed, if even that fitted within God's sovereign plan, then there's nothing that can thwart him. There's no move of the enemy that can outflank him. No power of hell and no scheme of man can disrupt God's sovereignty. The reality of God's sovereignty is powerful theology. And it's powerful in our practical daily lives. The more that we grasp it, the more it beds itself down in our hearts the less we're going to fear any other power. Whether that's a bullying individual or an oppressive government. Well, after renewing and refocusing their vision of God, these believers then bring their request to God. What would you and I pray for in this situation? You've just been given the dire threat of punishment. What would you ask God for? Maybe we'd pray for deliverance. Maybe judgment on the Jewish leaders. Maybe we'd pray for a plane ticket to Hawaii. Just some way to get out of the situation. These believers pray for boldness and power to continue their mission. Verse 29. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. These believers are not intimidated, but they're not cocky either. They understand 
the need for God's power. We've said it plenty of times before, prayer is an expression of dependence. These men and women are not afraid of those who are threatening them, but they're well aware they have no power of their own. And in response to their prayer for boldness, they are given boldness. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We saw earlier with Peter, these believers are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He lives in them. So this filling is in response to their prayer for boldness. The Spirit who is in them fills them with boldness. Sooner or later, every church fellowship and every individual Christian will face difficulties. Something or someone will threaten us. It might be an illness. It might be the process of aging. It might be some human authority that tells us to shut up about Jesus or that tries to intimidate us in some other way, maybe to join in with its way of life in denial of Jesus. The difficulties and the pressures and the threats will come. And if you and I are going to survive them, we have to keep our eyes on the one who has true authority the one who can save us from our sin and the one who will keep us for all of eternity, no matter what any man tries to do to us. Let's close by lifting up our eyes to the one who has true authority. We're going to sing, the Lord is King, and then there is a higher throne.